I appreciate that prayer a second ago, mentioning praying for our youth. Uh, it's been nice getting to see some of our college-age students coming back. It's been nice getting to catch up with them as they travel back into town, as their semesters uh, kind of wind up and finish up. We've got a few more schools that are still finishing, a handful of students that are still finishing the last week of school this week and are probably headed home this weekend. The end of the semester is always a stressful time. If you, if you remember high school or you're in college, you remember the end of the school year being a kind of a, a mixed bag of emotions. On one end, you're excited, obviously. The semester's almost done. You'll be able to go home, get some rest, maybe catch up with some friends. You know, you know, just take a break or get ready for that summer job. But there's also those final projects, those final tests that you have to get through. It's all, you have, there's this kind, of, this kind of gauntlet you have to get past in order to enjoy those, those, the summer months, the time off, the summer internship, whatever it may be that you're looking forward to. It's kind of plagued with those final projects and the big tests that you have to get through first. I'll never forget my third semester in college, I had one of the, uh, some really big projects I was, I was finishing up, a really large test on the horizon. I was in Greek 3, and I don't do very well, I don't do very good, with either one. This makes my point, right? I'm not good at language. As you can tell, I haven't really aced the English language quite yet, so putting me in a different language uh, was, was difficult. I did not do, I got good grades on it, but I, I could quote the facts, I could, I could do my vocab words, but Greek 2, Greek 3 are getting into the sentence structure, and I'm having to Google, you know, what are these, the, you know, what a predicate is, and stuff like that, you know, so it was difficult. I remember in Greek 3, though, it finally was starting to click. Greek 3 is, at least at Fried Hardeman, is when you start to translate some, so you spent that one year in the trenches where you're learning and memorizing. We're finally in Greek 3, you're getting to finally translate. And so throughout the semester, our nightly homework was to translate five verses from the book of John. And I was really enjoying that. Because I was putting all, all, all these skills I had really labored to, to finally get into practice each and every night. And it was difficult. I was having a hard time with it. Every night, I'm sitting down. Got my Greek translation out, and I'm just painstakingly, word for word, you know, parsing that out, trying to, trying, to rem- trying to remember, not being tempted, you know, it's an extra guilt if you cheat on Bible homework, right? Not being tempted to, to just quote, you know, no, I know what this says in, you know, in English, or to look at the English translation, trying to painstakingly, verse by verse, five verses a night throughout the whole semester, and it was finally at the end of the semester. Now, what I had not realized as I was doing that was obviously this has slowed my reading down greatly. As I'm translating each night, it's taking me an hour, and I'm reading each verse at, you know, at a snail's pace. And so what I didn't realize what was going on with me during that time was that slower speed, I was picking up so much more that I normally you know, read over or read you know, right by as, I, you know, as you read in a normal pace, whatever it may be. And it really hit me on a Tuesday night in November 2012 when I was translating some of the last verses in John chapter 19, or right in the middle of John chapter 19, verses 26 through 30. I won't read it as slow as I was writing it that night. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so he put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. 
Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. I'll never forget translating that last verse, that last phrase, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Because that was the last verse I was translating that night. And consequently, it was the last verse in my my translation tonight, too. And I I didn't get to keep reading. That's all, that's all the time I had allotted for my five verses on Tuesday night was it stopped at John 19 and verse 30, the, the phrase, and he bowed his head and gave, gave up his spirit. And it hit me right then and there that I don't know if I'd ever stopped at the death of Christ before. I don't know if, if in growing up when I was reading through the Gospels or if I have a lesson on it or I'm studying this passage, I don't know the last time I've stopped at this moment right here because at this moment what I, what I want to do Spiritually, what I, want to get, what, I want to, what I want to get to is the resurrection. I don't want to end with my Savior bowing His head and giving up His Spirit. What my mind wants to get to is a happier moment is when He's walking out of the tomb. But I couldn't that night. I had to stay right there in verse 30. And it sank in, I think for the first time in my life, Jesus' death. And that's an odd thing for me to say. I, I was raised in a church by Nana, right? So I, I grew up going to Bible class. I, I could tell you the death, burial, and resurrection story probably pretty young. But for the first time in my life, I, I felt like I actually felt the death. And I'd felt that before. I, I had read, you know, I, I like to read. I'm a big reader. I enjoy, you know, series of books with well-thought-out characters. And, and when I'm entrenched in a very good book like that, and one of the characters die, I'm not too proud, to, I'm not too, you know, too proud to admit I, I've shed a tear before over a, a literature character, right? And I've felt that emotion when someone you've been reading and you've been learning and growing with uh, throughout a series when they pass away, to be sad about that. But with Jesus, I don't know if I've ever been sad about the death because, well, I know the resurrection is coming. Now, I've shed tears. I've been moved to emotions, obviously, multiple times in my life through lessons and, and, and personal study at, the, at the, the pain that he went through and the torture that, he, that we're going to read about here in a little bit. And so I've been moved to emotion that, but I've never just sat and thought like Peter did, like the other ten apostles did that day. Jesus is dead. His existence is no more. There's no more words coming from his mouth. There's no more looks from his eyes. Jesus has passed away. And I wept. I wept for God having to see that. I wept for God having to look down and, and see his son to die that to die to have to die that type of death. I wept for Christ. Even though he knew that was coming, he still had to live that and go through that. And then I wept out of shame for me that for the first time, I guess when I was 19 or 20 years old, that was the first time I cried over the death of my own Savior. This, fund, this night, I don't remember the date, but somewhere in November of 2012, on Tuesday, it fundamentally changed how I saw the death of Christ. It meant more to me simply because of the speed I was going at and and not really recognize it, but I had attached myself almost like a, a 13th apostle, you know, stepping alone in a sales pace throughout that semester, going with them and walking with them into their place, see, walking with them to the different places and hearing the sermons that Jesus preached. So when he died, I felt it just that much more. And what it did was it reframed my view of the death of Christ. It changed how I saw 
the death of my Savior. And it's that word, refrain, that brings us to our next series in the Ministers Roundtable, whatever that we're doing. We do our Ministers Roundtable um, discussion down here. We've got the four cha- uh, chairs and we've got our podiums. And we do that for a series and now we're taking a break and we're going back into a preaching series for the month of May and we'll return to the Roundtable format in June. But for this month, for the month of May, each one of us will get up on a Sunday night and, and tackle a different topic and try to reframe it. And try to change, look at it from a different angle because that's what it means, reframe, to look, to observe, to learn something from a new or different way. That's what the word reframe means. And that weird Tuesday night in the third semester of my, my college career, right, it reframed, it changed how I saw the death of Jesus. And tonight what I want to do is I, I want to try, I want to, I'd like to try to reframe, not reframe, reframe with an emphasis on the M, our view on another fundamental concept of our Christian walk. And that's the concept of forgiveness. And it's hard not to go back to the cross when you're talking about the fundamental concept, the most extreme example of forgiveness. So if you have your Bibles, open up with you to Matthew chapter 27. That's where we're going to start our study tonight. Matthew chapter 27. You really don't realize how much you missed that, that back screen back there to look at it. Tonight our goal is to look at forgiveness from a different angle. To look at forgiveness from a, and from, from a different set of eyes. Now what we're going to look at is we're going to look at Luke's account, which we'll get to in a moment. When Christ looks at the soldiers who are crucifying him and says, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. But before we get to that magical moment where he says those just mind-boggling words that we don't, I don't know if I can even comprehend how he was able to say them. Before we get to that comment and that phrase in Luke chapter 23, we've got to meet the men that he's talking to. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered a whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before, his right, and knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, and sitting down... They began to keep watch over him. Let's just stop there for a moment before we continue our reading tonight to meet the next cast of people we're going to be looking at. And let's just, fought, let's just examine this relationship. Let's re- kind of re-examine this relationship that these soldiers, possibly the same exact ones from the beginning up until the end, that are around Jesus, what they have going on around him and what their relationship with him to is throughout this day. Starting in verse 27, you have the soldiers of the governor taking him in. Whether, where, after he got off trial, 
And they're leading him to Golgotha, and they're on their way. They have one stop on the way to Golgotha. They're going to take him and, and, just, and mock him just a little bit more. And so these very set of soldiers, this unbeknownst number of soldiers take him, and they take him off the beaten path, or walk into Golgotha, and they take a little sidestep, side take a detour, so they can mock him just a little bit more. And these same soldiers, they gather everybody around. Roman cohort, possibly hundreds of soldiers. Let's, let's just make up a number tonight, our four that we're going to be following. Our four soldiers that we're going to be following throughout the death of Christ. They go into the, the, the Roman barracks here. They have this cohort of hundred soldiers around them. And they gather everybody, they bring everybody in. And they circle up, I, I imagine, in, 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 around Jesus. They strip him of his clothing, and they put it. They mock him with a, with a scarlet robe around, and they, they press a, a, a crown of thorns on his head. They put a, a reed in his hand, and they start to spit, and they start to beat on him. And they take the reed out of his hand, and they start to beat it over his head. And they, stay, they start to mock him, and I, I imagine them you know, bowing down on their knees and, and, and mock authority to him, saying, Hell, King of the Jews, right? And they continue to spit, they continue to hit, they continue to beat him. And these say, when these same soldiers, once they're done with this, whenever they're, 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 they're done with mocking this poor man, they take the, the scarlet robe off. No doubt, this is, this is after he's been uh, flogged, and so no doubt reopening the cuts that may have dried up at this moment. They, they, they yank off the scarlet robe, they take the reed from him, they put back on his clothes, and they get back on the way. No doubt, still afflicting him throughout the journey to Golgotha. And it's at this point that Luke's account will also say that all, about this point, after they leave the Praetorian Guard, and these same four soldiers or so, and as they're leaving that, making their final way to Golgotha, it's now that these two other men join the party, the two thieves that were going to be crucified on the same day. We don't know their names, but these two men are going to be on each side, left and right side of Jesus, in a few short hours from this moment, raised up and crucified on his side. And it's at this point that they, that they become a part of the story. And, ima- and you've got to put yourself, if, if we can, in the shoes of these men just for a moment. Maybe, they've, maybe they know who Jesus is. Maybe they've even heard him at a, a former time. Maybe they've never seen this man named Jesus before. But they're starting to get an image of who he is and what he's about. Because he's been treated differently already. Already at this point, he's been treated differently than a normal prisoner about to be executed. As Jesus possibly still comes out with the crown of thorns on his head, there's this huge parade that's just going to be traveling from point A to point B to Golgotha. And as the two thieves are in this parade, and Jesus is right there in the thick of them, they witness how the soldiers start to treat him. They witness that crown of thorns that's on his head. They witness the lamentations the women are making all around them. They hear the insults that are already coming out and being projected to him on the way to Golgotha. These two men, the, the thieves, are going to become a little bit more important here in the second half of this message. Let's keep reading with our guards. Verse 37, and above his head they put up the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And at that time two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you, the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, and let God rescue him. Now if he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. And we're going to focus then in verse 44. The robbers, plural, who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the, until the ninth hour. Now if you have your Bibles, let's flip over to Luke's account in Luke chapter 23. These four men who have beat him, who have spat upon him, who have mocked him, who have led him from the Praetorian Guard, who have led him from the house of mockery there with the Roman cohort, who have led him all the way to now to the cross, who just strapped him down, put nails in his arms, put nails in his feet, raised him up and set him in into the spot where he's going to be crucified at. They hang a plaque over his head, King of the Jews, one last joke that they can play on him. And then now they just wait. This could take hours. In some cases it could take days. So now they just wait. And the first thing they do is they divide up the garments. This man, Jesus, he's not going to need him anymore. So as they sit at his feet, they divide their garments. Okay, I'll take this. You know, you, you know, do you want this piece? They, they, they cast lots for who's going to be taking what of him. And Jesus is sitting there. He's standing there being crucified. And he's having to listen to these guards barter for whose garments, or who's going to be taking home his garments that day. And then the verbal insults really start to, to settle in. Golgotha was on one of the most, in, uh, the, the most trafficked, excuse me, was on one of the most trafficked roads in and out of Jerusalem. And as Jesus was there, men are walking out, families are walking in, and they start to, they start to hurl insults at him. Oh, this man said he was the son of God. Oh, this man said he could, he could rebuild the temple. Why doesn't does he do that now? If he's the Son of God, then why don't he call God down now and, let him, and save himself from this moment? And they go by and they wag their heads, they shake. They're disappointed in this mockery of a man that's being crucified in front of them. And the, and the four soldiers, they just sit there. I'm sure they, they, took, they took jest in this as well. Since they were just simply saying the same thing just moments before then, since they themselves just hung a plaque over his head, mocking him one last time as well. So I'm sure they got delight in the jokes, in the, je in, in the jesting that was walking by as people wagged their heads at him, as they insulted him. Now we go to Luke's account, Luke chapter 23, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals on the right and on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's so one of the last images we have of these four or however many soldiers that we've been following so far along this journey. 
as he, as he is expiring, as, as, as hours go by, as more people walk past him now, he's getting thirsty. John's account, he says, I am thirsty. And this is when they, he offers him that Sarah wine to drink. And now everybody's getting in on it. They're mocking him some more. The passers-by are mocking him some more. The thief on the cross, one of the thieves on the cross, is continuing to mock him. Well, let's look back at verse 34, the hinge verse of our study tonight. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, I did not do well in Greek, but I remember this lesson right here, because it really stuck out with me, verse 34. But Jesus was saying, the idea behind the words used here, is that he didn't just say this comment once. We don't know if he's been saying this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I don't know if he's been saying this since that morning when, they, when he was pulled out of the Mount of, Mount of Olives. I don't know if he'd been saying that throughout this mock trial. I don't know if he had been saying that after being spit on, if after being hit. I don't know if he'd been saying it after he collapsed under the weight of the cross. Or maybe just at this moment. When almost all the work is done, Father, forgive them, they, do it. they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I wonder if he starts repeating it at this point to get through the pain, to get through what's going on around him right now. And what does that look like? I I try my best to put myself on that hill that day to look out and to see, to hear, and and I can't fathom that. To hear Jesus say those words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I, that, that's, a, that's an emotion, that's an ability, a strength that I, I can't comprehend. To have had the day, to have, to have gone through the hours that he just went through, and to have the same men possibly that were spitting on him, that were mocking him, that were ripping off and putting on reeds and crowns of thorn and, and scarlet robes, who just got done crucifying him, and Jesus can look at their faces, can look down as they cast lots for his clothes and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't, I don't understand it. And so I have to look, we have to reframe our idea of forgiveness here because this level of forgiveness is something that I don't think we can understand. Now I've got to put myself, and this, again, this is, this is hard, but I've got to put myself in, in the shoes of somebody else. How does this affect the people around Jesus at this moment? To hear Jesus say these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How does that affect the men around him at that moment? We actually have a pretty good idea of how that could affect somebody. Let's keep reading in verse 39. One of the criminals who were, hung, who were hanged there was hurling, hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Verse 40. But the other answered, and rebuking him, said, do you, do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. For this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, notice the exact same words there, just as Jesus was saying. Now this man is saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I love comparing this to Matthew's account of the two robbers who were hurling insults. In Matthew's account, you've got two thieves on each side, and throughout the day they're hurling insults, but Luke's account gives us a, a, just reframes it just a little bit, changes the perspective just a little bit, and recognizes a turn in emotion in one of them. At some point, 
for some reason, one of these thieves, who at one point was hurling abuse, who at one point was joining in in the mocking, now has changed his tune and is rebuking the thief two men across. What happened? At the moment of his own execution, what is, what is happening around him that is making him change fundamentally how he believes? There's no miracles being performed yet, right? There's no miracles happening around him. Something that he is hearing is changing his heart to the point where just minutes, just hours before, as he hung on the cross, he is hurling insults at the man to his right or to his left. But now, he's singing a different tune, he has a different fundamental belief, and he's rebuking the other thief. We may not know what ultimately changed his heart. We may not know what ultimately changed this thief's mind, but I like to go back to the idea that Jesus kept saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. To witness that level of forgiveness and not be changed by it. To be right next and be able to hear with your own ears Jesus looking at the men who had crucified him saying, Father, forgive them they do not know what they do. That's got to change you. That's got to have an effect on you to the point where it touches your core. And the thing is, the same soldiers that were mocking Jesus, the same soldiers that had been abusive to Jesus, were probably the same soldiers that just put nails through this man's feet and arms. And so it's this. It's this moment, listening in to Jesus here, saying, Father, forgive them. This man understands, okay, this is more than just a mere human. This man that's beside me, that's being crucified right next to me, that has been treated way worse than I have today, if he can still offer forgiveness to these men who are killing him, then there's something more behind the cover. There's something more to this man. There must be truth in the message people are talking about with him. He must truly be this king of the Jews. He must truly be this son of God that he has claimed to be, and it's because of that, this different viewing of forgiveness, to be that close to the forgiveness of God, it has an effect on you. And it changes this man in two ways. The first way, he did, the first way it changes him, it makes him aware of his own sin. Look back at verse 41. And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. You know, whether the thief on the cross woke up that day recognizing his guilt and recognizing that he deserved to be crucified that day or not, it's interesting to me that here now after recognizing Jesus' own forgiveness for these soldiers that he is saying, you know what, we deserve to be here. When faced with the, this, this mind-blowing love of God, this, this uncomprehensible forgiveness that Jesus is showing the men around him, the first response that this thief has is, you know what, he doesn't deserve to be here, but I do. When we come that close to this undeniable, amazing forgiveness of God, the first thing I think it does is it makes us aware of our own sin. It makes us aware, it makes us open up and be honest with ourselves to the own sin that we have in our own lives. And then lastly, verse 42, possibly as he kept saying this, Jesus, remember me when you come 
into your kingdom. Not only does it make us aware of our own sin, but it makes us aware of the Savior. Becoming that close to the forgiveness of God. I don't know how you walk away and not be changed by that. You ever been to a funeral? You ever lost a loved one yourself that radically changed who you were? You ever been through something as a husband, as a wife, as a father, a mother, a daughter, whatever, whatever role it was, that you went through something that was so difficult that on the other side of it, you were a different person because of it? Have you ever been shown love by someone that was so possibly undeserving, so amazing, that it lifted you up and you were a better person because of it? I don't know how this other thief didn't change his tune that day. I don't know how this third thief that ultimately we have no record, we have no record, we have no information that he ever changed. For him to be that close to the forgiveness of God, mere feet away, being able to hear himself, Father, forgive them for they don't know what to do, and still not understand it. And not be changed because of it. And then I think about times in my life where I have diminished or I have forgotten the amazing forgiveness that I've been shown in my life. I've never heard Jesus obviously say the words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, but I know He's looked to the Father on my behalf and says, Father, forgive Him for He doesn't know what He's doing. If I'm not changed because of that, if I'm not a, a fundamentally a different person today because of what I've recognized, the forgiveness that I've received in my life, then I must not truly understand the forgiveness that I got in the first place. For me not to wake up and be fundamentally a different person than what I'm seeing in the world, to live a different life than the people that don't have that forgiveness, that don't have that love, for me not to be different after receiving that level of forgiveness. And that must mean I don't truly understand the forgiveness that I got in the first place. Tonight, forgiveness is a very simple concept. It's, it's fundamental to our Christian walk. Just a few weeks ago, Kyle brought a, a, an excellent lesson how we need to forgive one another. And we understand this, this ability that God has forgiveness for, uh, for us. We have, this, we have this understanding that God, that we need to be forgiving of each other. But lastly, let me just say this. I hope tonight that you'll be inspired because of the forgiveness that God has showed you. That if a God can forgive you, that you'll be able to forgive yourself. Because sometimes the hardest thing to do when it comes to forgiveness is including you, yourself in that. Don't let Satan use your past to hold you back anymore. Be fundamentally changed by having come this close to the forgiveness of God. I'm looking forward to the rest of the lessons that the minister is going to be bringing in this series as we try to look at concepts in our faith that we may have overlooked. We may have diminished on accident. We may have dropped the ball in some ways because in some ways we see something like forgiveness is something so fundamental, something so easy, something that we were taught growing up. There's going to be other topics that seem like maybe that's passive. We don't need to, you know, we've, we receive that from God, but we have no hand in that. But some of these con concepts that we're going to be looking at, we need to be active. We need to be engaged in. Forgiveness is one of those. Forgiveness for others, but forgiveness for ourselves. 
as well. The phrase, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. I don't know what it sounded like that day on the hill. I don't know how the soldiers responded, how they responded to that time and time again as they heard that. What I do know is that one man on that day, it changed everything. Because of, hearing, becoming, because of hearing that forgiveness, being that close to it, you got to be in paradise with the Savior that, later on that day. If not, you have any need for forgiveness in your life. If you have any need, and maybe you're, you're a member of this congregation, you're a member of the Lord's church, and you need prayers of encouragement, you need prayers for your family to wrap, your arms, wrap their arms around you, and maybe you need forgiveness, maybe you just need strength, whatever it may be, let us help you do that. But maybe you're not. Maybe you haven't felt, you haven't been able to experience this life-altering, world-changing forgiveness that our God offers to all men. And you have some questions about that, or you want to talk more about that, or you're ready to experience it tonight. If you have any need, I just ask you to come forward as we stand and sing.
Jesse? Jay? If you've not had the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper today, the table has been prepared. And uh, if you exit to the rear of the auditorium, it's in the, uh, this level on, in Annex 1. We'll sing uh, three verses of uh, 732. We praise Thee, O God, for the Son of Thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, I'm the glory. Hallelujah, amen. sing a few verses of uh, 583. 583, sing to me of heaven. Have I missed anything? Oh, my God. 
Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for allowing us to wake up to another day to come here to worship you. Thank you for all the blessings you've given to us, for giving us a Bible that we have a way to know how to be saved and what to do to be more Christ-like. Please help us throughout our week as we struggle to be more Christ-like. We know we're going to fail, but that's a part of being human. Dear Lord, please help us to forgive and to learn how to be more compassionate and to learn how to put ourselves in other people's shoes and Help us to be more like you. Forgive us of all of our sins and help us and watch us and protect us in Jesus' name. Amen.